welcome to Holding the Fort Abroad, the podcast for expats with traveling partners. My name is Rhoda Bangeter. I'm a certified coach and the author of the book, Holding the Fort Abroad. Today, we're going to hear a story, a real story. My guest is Carlos Baker. He's a musician, an author, a dad who's moved continents, and he has also lived a few times away from his family. We'll be talking about all of that, of course, but he's also had some difficult moments and challenges in his life, which he will share with us too. And I hope that this conversation will be encouraging to you as you listen. So Carlos, thank you very much for being with me today. Rhoda, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. First of all, sort of give us a little bit of a sense of where you come from. I don't know, that could be a loaded question, but sort of where you come from, where you've moved, uh, a little bit about, about your story. Yeah, I was born and raised outside of uh, Providence, Rhode Island, so a New Englander. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I spent, I still have a lot of family there, spent the first uh, up until college there. And I was one of those guys that when I left for college, I never went back uh, or thought I was never going to go back. I, I definitely thought I was going to be, uh, you know, off into the world. And I got a degree and uh, once uh, college was over and... I, uh, my wife and I got married and had a baby. I quickly found myself back in the, the, uh, the town that I grew up in, in outside of Rhode Island and working in that area and at least attempting to do the traditional, uh, life where we bought a house and I got a job and did all that stuff. But, um, my artist brain didn't allow that. And I quickly found myself, uh, in a very tumultuous uh, mental health situation where I just basically deteriorated to not being able to function anymore. And um, at that point, my wife and I packed up our house and our then seven, six and four year old. And we moved to the little village that she was born and raised in, in Northern Germany. So we've been in, uh, we've been out here outside of Hanover for the last 14 years of our lives. Wow. So that's the quick, that's the quick ge- geographical story anyway. That that was, that contains a lot of story just there. But so, so growing up, there was no thinking, oh, I'll go live abroad or. It's funny when we look back at our lives, right? So, so the, you know, kind of the big event that happened in my life that seemed to have um, shaped my childhood was we, I had a very traditional, wonderful childhood up until I was 12, 13 years old. Uh, we lived on a farm next to my grandfather. So my father built a home on a kind of a gentleman's farm. And we had a you know very beautiful childhood in that we had motorcycles and and tractors and animals and horses and cows. You know, real, um, we were very blessed. Outdoors. Always outdoors and just great relationships. At least we had great relationships with um with family members, of course. Now, when I, uh, as I got older and heard all the gossip, I realized there was plenty of uh, turmoil within the the family relationships that I wasn't aware of with the aunts and and all that kind of stuff. But um, as far as I'm concerned, it was a wonderful childhood. And then when I was 12 and a half, uh, the uh, December of '87, they found a tumor in my a cancerous tumor in my left knee and in both my lungs. So I kind of went from being a, you know, an all-American kid with a, a, a family that we, we were wild and free. And all of a sudden we spent the next two years of um, of our lives in Boston Children's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And uh, although I wasn't once again aware of it, 
uh, everyone assumed that I was going to not survive because it was just one thing after another um, of setback after setback. And ultimately, um, for whatever reason, against all odds with 0% uh, chance, I did survive. And, um, and, and ultimately, after two years of trying to save my leg and, and many surgeries on my lungs, uh, they amputated my left leg just to the middle of my thigh. And from there, that was then I was 14 and a half and uh, life began once again. It was it was, you know, kind of on pause for a few years because we basically lived in in uh, in Boston. But uh, interestingly, that story, I think when I tell that story to people, it sounds so tragic and so hard mm. and so, you know, scary. And as now that I'm a parent, of course, I recognize how insanely crazy that must have been for my parents but oddly mm. for me it it wasn't so bad you know be, because i guess because of my personality type which is kind of um always super naive always assuming everything would work out kind of you know a a very positive guy by nature um, I didn't know I could die, even though all my buddies around me were dying, even though I was, you know, faced with all this stuff. I just assumed I'd get through it sooner or later and uh, and move on with my life. And even uh, even two years later, when they, you know, if a 14 and a half year old boy loses his leg to the middle of his thigh again, you'd imagine it's it's such a horrible experience. For me, I had just lived two years of my life with being sick from, you know, from chemotherapy and cancer and all this kind of stuff. And my leg, they had tried for so long to, to try and save it. It was such a hindrance in, in holding me back because I had this staph infection in it and it was just all. So when ultimately we made the mm. decision to amputate and did it, it was like a celebration for me. So everything, everything I experienced during those years, it was kind of counterintuitive of how you'd at least how, if I look back, if I think to myself, oh, that must have been really hard for me and for, but it was actually quite beautiful. And I, you know, I loved the nurses and it's, a, it's, it's very odd when I think back again, now I recognize how hard it must have been on my parents and, and it certainly took its toll on both of them. And I, I, I think my father never recovered in some ways from, from that kind of experience where his baby boy is he was expecting me not to make it so mm. that's a lesson for us parents right sometimes because we put our emotions on our kids and we're like oh poor thing you know poor thing and they're experiencing it completely differently than what than how we experience it and they were so good about it too you know they were so positive My, you know and it's, we were one of those families where we never said the word cancer i was sick for two years and we never said the word and like, you never said the word no, and and it wasn't for years later. I I I just w I would say tumor. I wouldn't generally say cancer. Or it, it's funny, right? How we all have our ways of handling it. My dad was a he is or was a real silly guy, um, businessman, but but as a general personality, a, a happy go lucky silly man, and that was his role in the hospital. He was you know he was at all the sick all the kids that were also going through these chemotherapies. He was the silly dad that came in and was laughing with them. 
And of course, with me, when you know, when we spent those um, days, unfortunately, uh, with with the different type of chemotherapies, it would be days of of vomiting, you know, a thousand times, uh, you know, over a three or four or five day period with these methotrexate and these type of drugs that are so toxic on the body. And my and my dad, my dad's role was just to, you know, be silly. And and I responded to that because I'm I was kind of like that. So sounds like your parents had sort of a a philosophy of life, huh? Of how they were going to handle this and how they're going to help you through it. Do you think that came through? Do you think they did it on purpose or it was just their way of being? I was going to say, or not, or it's just intuitive. And they were so powerless. You know, again, I can just imagine the, the feeling of powerlessness, the surgeries and the chemotherapy, and then the constant, those, again, as you can imagine, when you're every three months, you go in for those x-rays and bone scans and, you know, what what's next, you know, and mm. at one point after a year, I try not to dwell on this, make it too long, but after a year of chemotherapy, um, they, so that my chemotherapy was, was coming to an end. It was a year protocol, 12 months. They, we went in for all the checkups, uh, bone scans and all that. And they found a grapefruit sized tumor in my right lung. So basically what that meant was the chemotherapy that you have a 50, 50 chance of surviving, uh, this osteogenic sarcoma, it basically meant that didn't work. And now either go make some memories or perhaps try some, you know, some experimental type stuff. So the doctors, you know, went to my parents and said, you know, what do you want to do? You want to, you want to try and remove this, this tumor, which means remove the right lung and, and try some other stuff. Or do you want to go make some memories and quality of life? Right. And this, this is a very odd part of the story, but, um, the night before we decided to go through the surgery and the night before my mom had heard in this little church in Seekonk, Massachusetts, which is kind of near where we, we grew up, uh, was having some sort of a, a traveling guy that was a healer. And, and I'm not a super religious guy to this day. And my family is not a very religious family. We didn't grow up going to church, but we went to this church and to make a long story short, uh, the man was calling people out and, you know, I was a 13 year old kid with no hair and on crutches. And I weighed about 80 pounds because I was all skin and bones. And he called me up and he said, the Lord has sent me to heal you. And all these people, maybe 15, this is how I remember it. It was so many years ago, but 15, 20 people put their hands on my body, on my chest and were speaking in tongue. Like uh, yeah. mm-hmm. they were just making noises. I, so it was it was quite intimidating uh, for me, very emotional because it was a little scary. And I did, I must admit, I did feel something, you know, whatever the, the group energy, whatever it was. So it was, it was a very odd experience, to, needless to say. I was always a goofy git. And I, I, I remember we were walking out the church and I got to like kind of this grassy area and I threw both my crutches to the sides and I was like, I'm cured, you know, just acting like an idiot you know like a dumb 13 year old kid and my dad's mm-hmm. like Car- Car- you can't carlos come on that's disrespectful so the end of the story is i went in for surgery the next day to, to uh, expecting they were going to either remove a lobe or the entire lung and there was nothing in the lung the the uh tumor was gone modern medicine doesn't really know how to explain it other than to say it happens sometimes for whatever reason the body can cure itself perhaps yeah, so I woke up to that news and the doctors told my parents, 
when this happens, because we don't know how to explain it, we're not going to do anything. We're, we're done yeah. with chemotherapy and we're going to let the body figure itself out. And that was the, that was the experience I had with cancer. Cause I was, uh, you know, I never went back and that is an incredible story. Yeah. And I'm a Christian. So I'm a Christian. And to hear a story like that, I'm like, whoa, well, let's not underestimate what's going on. Yeah. So, and, and it's well, that's it's funny because a lot of people are like, you must be so religious as a result. And and oddly, I am not at, at all. In mm-hmm. fact, I'm an atheist. And but something happened. I, I know that one of my buddy, a, a doctor friend, when I told him that story about maybe five years ago, I loved his response. He said, listen whether you're religious and you want to believe that a higher, whatever you want to believe, one possible way of thinking it, it uh, about it is when uh, surgeons replace a kidney or a li- whatever it is, and they put a, a, a foreign thing inside the body, within hours, your body is immediately attacking that foreign substance mm. and killing mm. it, right? So it could be said that we have the ability to you know, to, to kind of attack these very specific areas, how we do that, how we can figure out a way to do that is, is the question, but however you want to look at it, I experienced it. I survived when I wasn't supposed to, and, um, and I'm still here. So. And you're here. So what would you, what would you say to parents now that you, I mean, you've lived it as a child and then you're, you've become a parent yourself. What would you say to parents living something like that, especially some parents live abroad outside their home country. They don't always know the medical system. They don't always speak the language. A lot of the people listening sometimes, you know, they're they're the lone parent. What would you say to, to the parents then? I mean, is there anything anything you can say? I don't know. I don't know if I think we, you know, we're as humans, we all handle all all our uh, challenges differently. I, gosh, I was so blessed in retrospect. I did go through, I remember years later in my teens, I did go through that, that like, why did I survive and and all those other buddies of mine not, you know, I did go through that stuff, but in the end, gosh, there's not so much you can tell people what to do. It's just kind of how we handle, you know, I was just lucky that I'm a a glass Mm -hmm. half full guy. I, I honestly believe that when people ask me, I say, I'll be honest with you. I was a dumb naive kid i'm i'm a dumb naive adult i still think everything's going to work out in my world even at my you know at my at times where i've had uh, mental health issues and i i never thought i was it was going to end that way i always assumed Mm. things would work out and uh your parents didn't cry over you. They didn't cry in front of you. They didn't despair and sort of, right? They were positive. No, no, they, no. Not, not in the fact that you want to sort of pretend or anything, but I think there's probably something in that, that that they didn't sort of kind of lament next to you and sort of pretty much kind of... Um, I agree. No no dwelling, right? Like, yeah, I think, I think that's... Yeah, no dwelling. I think not, not that it's bad, and I don't want to make anybody feel I bad know, if, I if, if they're doing the that. But I, I think, I, yeah, there's a fine line. But I, I think I think that, you know, that there is... I think your parents obviously handled it in a certain way, whether it was natural or or, or thought through. And, and the whole community that was, you know, my my grandparents, my my family, the 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 actual community, my friends... I had so many people that were so wonderful and, and gave me so much energy. And, and I remember I was very close with my grandmother and I went to my grandmother's house for, to spend some time with her after school, which I did often. And, uh, 
I said, I called her Nani. I said, Nani, I was learning about the Great Depression. And, you know, what was like the worst thing that that you that happened in your life? Like thinking she was going to say, oh, you know, my family. And then, and she was like, well, I guess you. And oh. I said, no, really. <laughs> I And I, I thought she was joking. I said, no, really. And she said, no, really, you, you, you getting sick was was probably the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I said, Aww. what are you talking about? Like, I literally didn't, re- that, I was at that age where I, I really didn't recognize the weight of, of me being sick, how it affected the community around wow. me, right? Yeah. And I remember I said, what are you talking about? She said, Carlos, th- that was so devastating to all of us. We didn't know if you were going to survive. And, and I was like, oh my goodness, I, you know, my sickness affected and then I started realizing that it affected my my brother. It affected, you know, certainly more than me because mm. I was kind of the I almost became a celebrity as a result because I was that kid that was, you know, I was that kid in town that was bald and going through chemotherapy and getting a lot of um, attention, right? <laughs> getting a lot. Of it, very, very odd. Yeah, I'm a strange guy, man. Mm. I always was. Um, well, then you, you're an adult, you marry someone from a different country, you, well, young, right? And then you move to that person's country. That's a big deal. How did you live all of that? And you had kids when you arrived in Germany. So did you learn German straight away? Did How did those first years go? Oh, gee, well, we've been here 14 years and my German is terrible. That's okay. That's good for people who don't speak, you know, like <laughs> encouraging. <laughs> And that's the problem. The problem in Germany is everyone speaks English, right? Mm, and, you can get away, right, with not. Uh, which is good and bad. Yeah. But um, I do. I must say, I understand a hundred percent, and I can communicate because I'm I'm not shy. For instance, my in-laws don't speak a word of of English, so so I can fake it. But yeah, we came. I was uh, I was in my early thirties. We had three kids. I was really, really struggling with mental health issues. Uh, I'd gone to work for the family, a family business, a fourth generation family business. And uh, I had a falling out with a family member. Oh, And yeah. And, you know, that was at that point where we had three kids at home. My wife was a stay at home mother. She was having a hard time. I was working way too many hours and wasn't as present as I could have been just because. And at that point, work was kind of almost my respite because I mm. had so much fun working with with the family and it's a big business, but I, I had a really nice role in it. And then I had this falling out with a family member and it threw me for a loop. It, mm. it, I wasn't prepared. I didn't know how to handle it. I had never really dealt with adult adversity at that point. I kind of, I was faced with, okay, now what? And, uh, and my brain couldn't handle it. So I um, started going through the panic attack stuff and anxiety and and really kind of um, regressed to the point where I was I I just couldn't function. I, I was able to function with the kids. I was able to parent, but I couldn't function in the real world anymore. I couldn't have normal conversations. I was so fearful of of this anxiety and these these panic attacks. And I wasn't. And the worst part of it is I wasn't telling anybody that's the p- mm. hard part mm. I wasn't being honest with anyone um and my wife is a psychologist she she has a master's degree in psychology and I wasn't even really sharing with her this bizarre fear that these I because I didn't know I just didn't know what I was feeling mm. you know I just knew that every second of the day I was fearing these panic attacks I I, could, I certainly wasn't no longer functioning at work so at some point you know Unfortunately, it took way too long. It was a couple of years of 
living like that and still taking a salary from a family business, but no longer able to, uh, you know, really work in any reasonable way. And then I also happened, my best friend in the world growing up also worked for, for my father. So we worked together for about eight years. And when I went through kind of this anxiety, depression stuff, I just pulled myself away from everybody. Mm. So after two years of not talking to him, not talking to my brother, not talking to really anyone, just kind of pretending I was working. It's very, very confusing when I think back. At some point, my best friend, he, I, I would just not allow people to, to kind of catch me to talk. I was just literally trying to stay away from the real world. And he kind of caught me and he said, how you doing? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm fine. <laughs> like, I, you know, and then I said, how about you? He said, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I'm thinking of leaving the business, you know, and that's really hard because, you know, you know how great this place is. You know, I, the people are so great, but I think it's time for me to, to, so, so that was kind of the gist of the conversation. So that day I, with the conversation ended, I got my car and I finally said, okay, my best friend in the world just told me that the place we work is wonderful and all the people we work with are wonderful. And I used to think that I loved all these people and now I hate them and despise them. So something's got to be like, it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, it can't be, it has to be me. I must be broken. Like it was finally, it was just that moment. And I literally drove that day. I called my wife and I said, I'm driving to, it's called Butler. It's a mental, uh, uh, mental health hospital uh, in, in Rhode Island, in Providence, Rhode Island. And I drove straight there. I, I walked in and I said, I'm, I'm screwed up. I'm something's not right with me. And uh, they were so good. They, they got me in to see a, a, a psychiatrist immediately. And I was super honest with them. I said, here's the story. I, I haven't driven in the same car with anyone but my wife and my kids for two years. I haven't talked to. And he's like, oh, OK, well, yeah, you're going through depression. We're going to get you. We'll get you fixed up. You know, you'll, you'll feel back to yourself in a few weeks. Wow. And and it, and it was true. You know, I, I got, got, you know, of course, started with some Xanax and Klonopin and but ultimately ended up on um, the same meds that I'm on now, which has been, uh, I guess, 15 years now of, um, I think in America it's called Effexor. And uh, and it, it was just like the movies, man, that, you know, within a week, the sun sun came out and that, 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 that crazy, you know, wet blanket or all, however people describe it, it lifted. And I was like, Oh, okay. Mm. I can, I can actually live normal. You know, um, unfortunately that was the, uh, for, for those of people who've gone through depression, that was the, the, the honeymoon part of, uh, coming out of depression. The work was still to be done on, mm. on, um, dealing with the, the emotion for me, which was shame of, of getting myself into that position, shame of failing, shame of being weak, you know, all the stuff that you then have to deal with, which took me far too many years to, to finally work through. But it was that literally that day when I came home from my wife and I said, I have to, here's the story. You know, I just talked to a guy, he, I'm on these meds. And uh, from one day to the next, we decided to move to Germany with no plans, with no you know, we didn't have any housing here. I didn't have any money. We didn't have any, you know, no savings because we were a young family. And uh, we packed up a, our house in a in a container and we were in the little village, I guess, maybe 60 days later. 
uh, that was in 2009. So our house was underwater. That was kind of during the, the, that housing night nightmare, you know, the housing bubble. So the wow. house, house was underwater. We left the keys to the bank. We moved to Germany and, uh, you know, we moved into the home that my, my wife's grandmother, who was 95 lived in the home. Her mother who was in her sixties lived in the home and her brother and his three kids lived in the home. So we moved into a household with four generations with no bedrooms that we could take. We did, they just kind of put us up. They were so good to us. And, and I think everyone was aware that I was uh, obviously not, not in a very healthy place and I didn't speak German, but that was the beginning of an amazing uh, kind of adventure here in Germany. And boy, we, we, we look back at it and say that saved, not only did it save, our lives to, you know, because we got, we got out of a world that I, I couldn't stay in. It would have been hard to stay in that family business. Um, and we started a new chapter. It was, it was really beautiful, actually. <gasps> wow. Thing is, I was going to say it's courageous, but sometimes you just take a decision, right? Because you know, it's the right one and you go for it without knowing where necessarily it's going to lead. But yeah. And I give my wife a lot of credit on that one. You know, my wife was the one that I don't know. At that point, I wouldn't have been able to make any major decisions. I think she she was also in retrospect. We had three kids in thirty six months, so we we because Ooh. we were older when we started. That was our plan. We thought that was a great idea in theory. <laughs> Turns out it's not a great idea. We had a, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, we had twelve months apart, and then twenty four months later, we had another one. So she was also struggling and and was really wanted to ha be around her, her community. Mm. Um, so I give her a lot of credit for, for driving that decision. And I followed and in retrospect, it was the greatest decision I could have ever asked for uh, because Germany is wonderful. It's, you know, uh, I mean, perhaps maybe any, anywhere we went would have been wonderful for me because it was a new start and I needed that at that point in my life. Mm. But, um, but Germany for, for families and, uh, it's really a it's really a great place to live. So you had the environment and the space and the time to sort of repair and and learn and figure out what yeah. how you wanted to go. And then you then so she started working and you raised the kids. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really for me going back to work at that point would have been a challenge because I didn't speak German and I was emotionally I just wasn't ready. Um, she went right back to work. She she found a job and um, actually has been at that job for 14 years. She loves it. And uh, yeah, and I was given this opportunity to to raise at that point, a seven, six and four year old, which meant driving them to school, bringing them in and out of, you know, kindergarten, uh, all the things with no, no ability to speak the language. And uh and it was the greatest. I, you know, I figured out how to cook. I learned, I, I quickly learned all the stuff that you got to learn, uh, you know, how to make pasta and, you know, the things that kids eat. And um, and then you had a fourth. Which is crazy. Um, in 2011, we had, that was two years after we had got here. We had another baby. And, and of course, Germany has wonderful maternity and paternity laws. So my wife did stay home for um, not quite a year. But I think it was about nine months until she went back to work. But then I got to raise a baby, which, Lord, I never thought I would have had that experience. So what was it like? Um, so were you the only dad often in groups? Oh, I was the only father. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
now I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm obviously 14 years. I was a, like a very big, I was always into bodybuilding, even though I had one, uh, an artificial leg, I was an athletic boy. So my sport starting at 14 and a half was became bodybuilding. And I, that's what I called it, you know, going to the gym and all that stuff was trying to get in shape, trying to get big. So I did that for literally 35 years. And so when I got here, I was this big American guy with long hair and, <laughs> you know, and because I'm an American and I'm not too bright, the first thing I did when we, once we figured out the money situation, instead of buying a small little Volkswagen, whatever people drive here, the, the small little cars. What, you got a motorbike? No, I got like a big stupid SUV. Because that's what right, that's okay. what we know, right? Like that's what I know. Yeah. I always drove big. Okay. Stuff. So I'm driving around vill the village in this big, <laughs> dumb, you know, monster suburban, and I'm all American. And and it, I think people just thought that I was a little nuts. And you know, there was no other guys that were walking into the kindergarten with their babies. So, but the community here has been amazing. I, I I'm a friendly guy, so I I got to know every i love i love kids so i got to know every single kid in the town and and every kid in the in uh, all three of the children's classes and um i had a blast man i had such a blast uh, raising the kids i i can't tell you how how much i enjoyed it and and how present i was you know for for a bunch of reasons one because because it was at a time in my life where my brain was i think resetting itself and and I was so excited to to be really in the moment with all these experiences. And then, I, and I think I'm mm -hmm. an artist. I mean, I, I've always been a writer and, and always had a notebook in hand. And and given this opportunity to watch my kids grow up, I was super aware of it. You know, we were mm. we weren't that generation with phones and iPads. So we when we were in the car, or when we were together, we were really together. You know, we were we were talking and we were listening to music and I was sharing with them who I am. And, and, and it, it was, it was just a very um, organic kind of way to raise children as opposed to n now it seems like, well, you know, life has changed, right? Th things have changed. Yeah. You raise them as you are, right? That's that's how we all do it. We raise them as we are. You can't raise them any other way. You have to raise them according to how you yeah. see the world. Yeah. And the fact that they were mine, it, it was. It, it's so interesting in retrospect. the The way our family system works, and I know everyone's is different, but the way ours works is my wife is is really has more of I would imagine the traditional male role which is more um not just the going to work yes she she goes to work every day and 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 I stay home so that is different but even our roles emotionally you know I'm I'm the more loving of the two of us and she's the disciplinary um mm. she, she's much more like you're the of, nurturer she's yeah you're yeah, more the yeah, nurturer and, and, and our personalities have always been like that, you know. In college, I, I was a free spirit. I'm I was always full of the devil, and and you know, always silly and laughing. And she was always very serious. It's just who she is. That's her mm. personality type. Very yeah. kind of w without being disrespectful. Very traditionally German, you know. Really, 
Yeah, really disciplined and discipline. Yeah, got a yeah. 4.0 in college. You know, was a full ride yeah. uh, uh, volleyball uh, scholarship athlete, and um, and that that kind of just it it went into the parenting style in that I was we were constantly on the run doing stuff and acting silly and and listening to music loud and you know and my wife was constantly kind of yelling at us like you know just always stressed out that's kind of her personality and i i yeah, adore her yeah. so when i when i say this i'm i'm really making statements that are true i'm i'm not judging that's that's who she is and yeah. and i've loved her for 32 years because of that but mm. very very tough on the kids very very uh, high mm. expectations that's a nice balance i think i think that's a nice balance i mean Oh, this, that's what they say, right? Opposites often attract, and then it provides that balance. Rather than seeing it as two opposing views, see it as you know something that can be mixed, and and it brings the the two sides of a coin. So you uh, you've also spent time away from the family, and that's something I just wanted to touch on. Yeah. Because um, you there were things you wanted to do. Yeah. And. To be able to do them, you had to, well, you chose to do them in another country. Yep. Well, and I think that's interesting. Yeah. They, from, from, from day one, uh, music, from the day, day we arrived here, music became um, a part of my life again. So I was always a musician, always playing, always mm. writing. But the day that we arrived here, I, I took, I brought my contrabass, uh, upright bass, we call it, and, uh, and my, my bass guitar and, immediately found a wonderful community here so that that actually helped me tremendously to to start writing again and to start nurturing that part of my personality which is super important in retrospect for my mental health so i always kind of was able to find my own stuff my own time away from the kids with that that all of us need right to stay healthy and balanced in 2019 uh, at which time I was still the the uh, primary uh, caregiver. My best friend in Chicago got sick. I decided uh, I had to tell my wife and uh, four kids. I said I've decided to move to Chicago for six months to to help a, a friend. And of course, my wife at that point was not happy about that decision because she was working and I was taking. That was a long kids. time. That was a long time. Yeah, from February till till the end of the. Uh, end of the summer and it was hard you know it, of course with technology it, it's a little bit easier perhaps than than uh past generations because you can video chat every day and you can i did put a lot on my wife's uh plate where she now had to do all the shopping and all the laundry and all the you know we don't have a household that we ask our kids to do chores um for some reason but uh so you know she was was faced with doing all that stuff but i also uh also got to experience one of the greatest you know six months of my life in in watching first of all in helping uh, a friend that i thought was important i i had gone through that stuff and lived in a hospital for two years and now my best bud was faced with that same challenge i was there with him from seven in the morning until 11 at night and then another then a a, a professional caregiver came out came in and, and sat with him throughout the night but um that experience, I think also, not only was it good for my relationship with my wife, because it gave, again, respectfully, it helped her realize 
when I was gone, how much, how much of a partnership we were all of a sudden she had to do all the stuff that I was doing. I don't want to cause trouble in my marriage, but maybe she took that stuff for granted. <laughs> like, like all of us sometimes do with yeah. our partners, right? Wasn't easy for her, but you uh, made it look easy. Well, you know, that's the <laughs> thing is man. to this day, we only have one at home now, but I do the laundry and I do the kitchen and I go shopping and I cook so happily. I have never once in 14 years complained about doing laundry. I actually like it. I, I'm one of those people that I do mm. not mind folding clothes and I do not mind going shopping. And yeah, I came back after six months and I feel like our our marriage was stronger than it had ever been after those six months. And my my kids, I think they also learned a valuable lesson, right? That that sometimes you gotta go. You know, they they got to they got to experience through pictures and through stories this this crazy challenge that my that this human who, who I loved was going through and and all this uh, this stuff that he had to face um he became a handicap uh, a fully handicapped person and uh and they got to see oh you know my father made sacrifices right you know it, um or, or yeah. you know this is what you do for a friend. This is how you. This is how you. This your is how you show love, right? This, this is, is how you show you care for. This is and how it, you show love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a little of that. Uh, what is that? Pay it forward. Wasn't that the saying that people used to say? It was a yeah. little bit of mm -hmm. that. Like, yeah, yeah. I had lost my leg when I was a Somebody kid. Somebody helps he was, you. Yeah, he was faced with losing his limb, limbs, and uh, and I knew that world, and I knew that I could. I had something to give. I had something to share with him and help him get through. Mm. And and we're still very, very yeah. close. And uh and he is forever grateful. He's he he's learned, mm. you know, he's learned to to he's still here, he's still fighting, and uh and he's so appreciative. So so that was that was the first time mm. I left the family. That was six months. Since then, yeah. I have been much more yeah. aggressive in um when I when I need to go do stuff, I go and and my wife is actually quite supportive of it. I I spent last uh, all of 2022 in Chicago making a, an album, actually making a, uh, an, a my second album, which is streaming all over the world now. Little plug here. Right, go on. What's the title? What's the name uh, yeah, of the album? It, the the name of my band is called CK Baker Band, or the name of my my project. Mm -hmm. And uh, I write all the music and I worked with a wonderful producer from Chicago named Brian Deck, who produced the Counting Crows and uh, a bunch of he, he's towards the end of his career now. He's a little bit older. Yeah, I spent uh, last year and I came back. And once again, uh, when I came back, I, I feel like every time I go and come back, my wife and I seem to find a, another gear in our uh, in our relationship and uh, as of today, I can happily say that we are, I think we're more content now than we ever have been in our marriage, which is pretty damn cool. That is so nice. That is really nice. So your album, it, it, what kind of soundtrack is it? I mean, is it, uh, what what mood do I do, do, am I in when I listen to it? Or what mood will it bring me yeah, into? Yeah. Uh, lyrics are all very dark. It, it uh, Everything that it must be for me kind of the purging of of the darkness that's in my uh in my brain so it's okay. it's talking a lot about uh depression and and um kind of the monster that's inside us that at least for me um 
is always kind of, I always feel like unless I'm very aware and always doing work, which I am working on myself, I always feel like that, uh, that monster is, is chasing me. I don't know if we all feel that way or if that's mm. just the, the artist in me, but, um, but it's a rock album. I think a lot of us do. Yeah. A lot of us do. And maybe mm -hmm. a lot of us don't, don't I work at it as much do. as we should. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm so aware yeah. of it and, um, not, not afraid of it anymore, but I am aware. And, uh, I, I'm constantly uh, making sure, keeping myself in check. But the album, the the album, I'm yeah. so proud of it. It's it's uh, you know a rock album, and I'm I'm a singer, and I I'm the songwriter singer, and I play bass. So. Mm. And your book, can you tell us a bit about that? Because I I just um took a look at it and read the blurb of it, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this also yeah. looks very uh, interesting. Uh, ties into all of this stuff. Uh, always been a big reader. Reading was. I, I think reading was one of the ways that helped me get through my darkest days because um, I would often hide in a in a book and kind of go into that world of whatever whatever book we were reading at the time. Yeah. Um, in 2017, yeah. my my uh, my daughters were at that age where we were buying for Christmas time at Christmas. We were getting them a bunch of different young adult books uh, like um fault of the stars mm. and kind of this stuff that you know 14 year old girls would read uh we probably got them each five books and i i remember and i always read all their I, i'll read anything so i would i would always read anything they were reading too just out of curiosity more than anything and i remember i, I read a few of the back blurbs of the back of them and i was like huh I think I could write a book like because I think the beauty of young yeah, yeah the beauty of young adult books is they're not it's not always fine prose you know it's a lot of times prose mm. actually would get in the way for for young adults because it would complicate the reading process and so I actually like sometimes reading young adult books because they're easy you know so I I, I said you know I think mm -hmm. I could I'm not a writer per se but maybe I could write a book and uh and the the first day of that was 2016 the summer uh the uh, christmas and the first day of 2017 writing a book and i did it um i approached it very much the way i uh i write as a musician and songwriters uh, as songs in that i didn't have any uh you know i didn't have any plan i'm gonna see what happens i'm gonna let it flow and and kind of see if i can write a book whatever that means and of course, the topic, the main character was a 16 year old girl, because I had just spent the last 10 years of my life raising my daughters and watching them go through puberty and watching them have their first boyfriend and, you know, and talking about it and, and, you know, really kind of enjoying just enjoying watching these two beautiful young, you know, young adults growing up really very much involved and uh, so they quickly became the, the main character became a 16 year old uh, girl. And um, and then there's just all the things that were important in my life, all the people that made an impression upon me. They tend to be people that were flawed. So, um, you know, one of a guy that I grew up with that I to this day adore, he he was a 20, 20 year uh, heroin addict. So, of course, that made an impression upon me. You know, all the conversations I had with him mm -hmm. about that, um, 
I, those things is what's, you know, that's what's stuck in my mind. And uh, so I kind of just let it flow. And about 18 months later, I had uh, 130,000 words, which is about how much a book is supposed to be. And then I found a wonderful uh, editor out of Israel um, who took me on a, a kind of a right. developmental editor, not a line editor. And she helped uh, help kind of whittle yeah. the book down to the way it was, you know, closer to where it's supposed to be. And and I rewrote it maybe 10 times. Uh, just I listened to everything she said. And ultimately, it landed at about uh, 80,000 words. And I it is not, you know, I'm not Shakespeare, but man, am I proud of it. And um, yeah, so is it, it's for teenage girls primarily, but I would definitely read it as a grown um, little more than 16 year old girl. I think I would definitely read it. So. <laughs> it's a little dark there. Yeah, there's dark parts. There's, you know, there's there's issues in it. But I think especially with this generation, man, people, you know, 14 year old kids, 16 year old kids, they are so, uh, you know, so much further along than you and I were when we were kids. So, um, yeah, I, in the end, it's about human flaws. You know, it's, it's, there's about five different stories kind of interwoven, and each one of those characters has their flaws. And does it end well? Or does it end? end? That's, uh, that's who we are. We're all flawed. That's no, it. Okay. It ends incredibly tragic. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> well, no, no, no. That I shouldn't say that. No, 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 no. Uh, it it, it ends it, it ends in the way it's supposed to. It, it uh, my favorite book of all time is a book called uh, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, and in the end, it ends with it ends in the most possible tragic way. It, all the characters that you love don't survive at the end but that is the way the book Life had to end. Is. it's real yeah. yeah it's real you know uh, so yeah yeah unfortunately sometimes but those are the books sometimes that grip us and that are the ones that are the most realistic in our you know that feel the most realistic because we're like well Yes, this is how life goes sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, Otherwise, it's called you're like, well, oh, this is just a fairy tale. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. Um, thank you for sort of telling us about more about your life and everything. <laughs> and um, we'll put all these, all the names and all the links in the show notes. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? No, I, I, I so appreciate it. I love what you're doing. And uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you, Rhoda. Well, thank you very much. Yeah.